The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Leadership today is more than just a position in an organization. It's also a mix of proven practices that produce results. Welcome to Adesis Methodology for Collaborative Management for Exceptional Results with Dr. Ishak Adesis. Our program will bring you the how and why of successfully led businesses or organizations with not-for-profit goals and how you can apply the Adesis Methodology and make it work for you. Now, here is Dr. Ishak Adesis. Hello, 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 hello. This is Dr. Adizas, and I'm back in California, sunny California, finally after a very long trip, three weeks long, and uh, maybe that's what we should do today, report to you on the trip, and what did I learn from this trip. Uh, I started by going to Montenegro, and I think I reported to you about Montenegro already, but I think it will be interesting to repeat it. It is a country... um, with 600,000 employees, uh, I mean, uh, population. Uh, very small country, it used to be part of Serbia, and before that, part of Yugoslavia. And when Yugoslavia fell apart, it was part of Serbia, and then when Serbia started falling apart, they became independent of Serbia, so now it's an independent country. Uh, located uh, south of Croatia, north of Albania, and east of Kosovo and Macedonia, and on the west it has Adriatic Sea, across from which is Italy. So located in a very, very interesting place, first of all because it's below the Croatian Riviera, which is now very famous, so many tourists go to Croatia now, and it's about the Greek Riviera, and across from the Italian Riviera. And guess what? It has beautiful beaches, I would even say, for me, more beautiful than Croatia, totally unexplored and available for people that want to find uh, 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 unspoiled nature. It's really an unspoiled beauty. Uh, big mountains along the, along the coast, and there's the only fjord south of Norway. Fjord south of Norway. The only fjord in Europe, in a sense, except for Norway. And it is warm water, and you can swim. I swam there in October, as a matter of fact. And then you can take a car and drive north, and within an hour and a half, you can go skiing. So it is an unbelievable, attractive location for tourism uh, because of its beauty and because of its location and the variety of experiences it can provide. It has deep canyons, so you can go rafting. What about this country? Well, out of 600,000 uh, inhabitants, only 165,000 are uh, employed. The rest are either retired or children. It has uh, 
no minerals, no mines, and it doesn't have much developed agriculture to speak of. There is agriculture in the north, bordering with Serbia, but it's more small farms interrupted by mountains and canyons, so you don't have a continuous piece of land on which you can use economies of scale for agriculture. So agriculture is limited, mining is not available, heavy industry is not available. What would you do in a country like that? And I was invited to consult to the prime minister and to be the chairman of the advisory board for the Central Bank of, of Montenegro. Obvious answer is tourism. But what they've done wrong in my judgment is they allowed a lot of cheap tourism, mainly from the Balkans, and now increasingly they're coming from Germany and from Europe. But this is what we call tomato tourism. They bring the sandwiches with them and they don't spend too much money. Last year, the statistic has shown that on average, a tourist spent in Montenegro 26 euros a day. Can you imagine 26 euros a day? I mean, that's what you will spend a cup of coffee somewhere else. So they need to upgrade the tourism to higher level, to more expensive one. But what do you offer those expensive tourisms? So that's what I was struggling with. And my answer is what they really have a problem is they cannot, there is a recession all over Europe, or going to be a recession. Uh, and and uh, so what central banks do in time of recession, they try to print money so that there is the plug, they, they create work in order to create demand and to create uh, 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 anti-recessionary moves. But Montenegro cannot do that because Montenegro uses the euro and uh, they cannot print the money. They don't have the right to do so. So the central bank is really limited in its tools of what it can do. What would the country do? There is no way to stimulate monetary policy. They don't have a big labor force, and the labor force that they have is most of them still un unqualified. <clears throat> Very few are trained in universities. They don't have mines. They only have the beauty. But even that beauty is now getting slowly spoiled. And uh, because people are coming to buy anything they can and they're building small apartments for their vacation time when they come during the summer. So the whole place looks like Malaga or like looks like some other places in Europe, which are ghost towns during the year and they're alive only during the summer. All of it sounds bad. My recommendation to the government was that they need to, ex to, to, to capitalize on the location. Years ago, years ago, the center of the Middle East used to be Lebanon, Beirut, and all multinational companies had their headquarters there. After the war that happened in Lebanon, the multinationals escaped and they moved the headquarters to Athens. 
No, Athens is in trouble. So they're looking for headquarters. Where would be the headquarters of companies and a financial center for the region going from Egypt all the way to Central Europe? Where would that be? And I was also in Dubai just two days ago, as a matter of fact, and that's a booming town, but that are not really for this region, the center for Iraq, Iran, and the Emirates. Maybe, maybe to become a center, financial trading center for the region, but they don't have the manpower, they don't have the time. So my recommendation was you need to import like Abu Dhabi is doing, like the Emirates are doing, they're importing talent. Just go and hire the best people in the world to come to live in Montenegro, which is a beautiful country, by the way, very modern too, and let them develop the financial centers and the trading centers that you need. Anyway, so that was my trip to Montenegro. I met with the prime minister. We discussed the new cabinet that he's putting together. A very interesting meeting. And from there on, I flew to Russia, to Moscow, cold. First of all, it's very cold, unpleasantly cold. And I would say that I do not prefer to go to Russia, to, I mean, to Moscow during the winter, not only because it's cold, but also because the traffic is unbelievable. You know, 18 kilometers from the hotel, to the, to the bank where I'm working might take an hour and a half, even two hours in traffic, one way. So it is a real disaster, the amount of time people spend in cars, going from one place to the other. You don't want to go out at night because the traffic is so heavy and you waste so much time on traffic. We are also starting to consult to the city of Moscow with a $50 billion operating budget annual, and they're considering to make the river, which goes through Moscow, as a floating parking space, to free the streets, and to free the congestion of cars, which is really blocking and ruining the quality of life of people in Moscow. What can I report on, on Russia more than what I reported to you already? Uh, maybe after the break, I'll give you some of my insights about what is plugging, what is undermining the capability of Russia to become a world leader economically and even politically. They're so busy with their internal problems and you might call wasting a lot of energy inside that the capability of becoming leaders is being hampered. Let's do that after the break. I'll give you some report on what I consider the problems of Russian management. Let's call it a break now. Be sure to friend us on Facebook. You can do it right now. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for us at keyword Voice America. The Adesis Management Methodology increases the speed at which organizations are able to implement change and solve their problems. 
The methodology introduces an innovative process, culture, and system that allow organizations to achieve dramatic growth in both revenue and profits. Build your success from within. Adesis Management Methodology is delivered by the Adesis Institute with offices worldwide. Introducing a new management paradigm. Visit www.adesis.com for the Adesis Institute today. The Adesis Speakers Bureau can present the Adesis Methodology and its approach to harnessing the power of change to your top management team. The presentations, either in person or via a live video hookup, can be delivered in a two, four, or six-hour format. Participants can derive immediate benefit from the material and put their new knowledge to use right away. For luncheons, corporate retreats, and strategic planning meetings presented in a variety of languages, visit www.adesis.com. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You are listening to Adesis Methodology for Collaborative Management for Exceptional Results with Dr. Ishak Adesis. If you have a question or comment about the program, please call in to 1-866-472-5790. Again, that's 1-866-472-5790. Or send an email to paula at adesis.com, spelled A like America, D like Denmark, I like Israel, Z like in Zambia, E like in Ecuador, and S like Spain. Now, back to the program. Okay, so uh, here we are now. I'm, I'm giving you a report about my travel, which took three weeks, where I went from Montenegro to Russia to Israel and then to India and came back last night, as a matter of fact. Uh, about Russia... I already told you about the tremendous waste of time that goes in driving around Moscow, which is an absolute disaster time-wise. But the interesting thing is the other thing that they notice in Moscow, for instance, because people, there is, <laughs> there is Moscow and there is the rest of Russia. Uh, it's like two different countries. And Moscow is the epicenter of everything that happens in Russia. That's what the headquarters of the companies are. That's what the financial center is. That's what the government is. Moscow is it, you might say. And it's booming. People try to live in Moscow. That is Russia. Because of that, real estate is unbelievably expensive. Unbelievably expensive. Moscow is considered to be the, the most expensive city for businessmen in the world. Uh, the hotels, I mean, $1,000 a night is not unheard of. Restaurants are expensive, but the real estate is prohibitively expensive. So what happens to a, a normal, you might call it, quote-unquote, a man of the street, Russia? How do they get a place to live? Well, they get small, small places, or they have to commute to outside of Moscow, to the outskirts of Moscow, and they spend hours driving back and forth or taking the subway back and forth. Terrible for quality of life. And what happens when a couple gets divorced? That's what it was very interesting for me when I talked to several divorced people. They cannot afford to get another apartment. So the divorce partners 
continue living in the same apartment, separate rooms. But then what happens next? Well, eventually they might get remarried. Now, two couples are living in the same apartment. I even heard extreme cases when they share the same room. What's going on? Well, what's going on is the necessities of life. You need to live somewhere. You don't have a choice. So what do you do? You accommodate. And I, because of <laughs> I wrote a certain blog, which is going to be published in the next weeks about it, because I said, look at the, how the reality forces people to compromise. Reality forces people. Well, so what do you do? You don't have a choice. You do what you can do. Why don't we apply it also to international relations, I said to myself. The same thing is true probably for the Palestinians and the Israelis. They share the same quote-unquote room, the same space. There, there is no other place to go. The Israelis say we have no other country to go to. The Palestinians have no other place to go to. Thus, they have to learn to live together. There is no choice. Like those couples in Moscow have to learn to live together, although they're divorced. They don't have to like each other. They don't have to love each other. Just have to stop making each other's life miserable. Which also applies for the Middle East. But I promised you to report what did I learn about the managerial practices in Russia or what's, what's holding it up from becoming a real power. And here it is what it is. It's very interesting, in my judgment, that the Russian culture, let's start with culture, which is the driving force, does not have A. Really, the Russian culture is weak on A. Very weak on A. It starts with a language even, and I was told something very interesting. It's an amorphic language structure. There are multiple ways, all legitimate, how to structure a sentence. For instance, take the words, I love you. You can say it in four different ways, all legitimate. You can say, I love you. You love I. You I love. Love I you and love you, I. Can you imagine? Four different ways to say I love you, all of them legitimate. In other words, there is no one way, the right way. Anything could be right. The rules are not that required. It is basically, you can reconstruct. And <laughs> I say, this reminds me of how they drive. I have never seen more creative, quote-unquote, driving like I've seen in Moscow. People change lanes, go weave in and out, drive around as if anything is legitimate. They're very, very, they don't accept A, they don't live with A. So where is this bureaucracy coming from in Russia? It was forced by the communist regime. It was a forced A. It's not a genuine A like, it is, let's say, Britain. England, where you can see people get in line automatically when they stay in lanes automatically, nobody tells them to do so. They are simply culturally organized, not true for the Russians. That has several repercussions for management. Number one is, number one, important. There is a lot of focusing on 
how to do things rather than why to do things, all because of this forced bureaucratization, which is not natural. And you can find out whenever they make decisions, <coughs> from my experience as a consultant, the discussion is, how are we going to do it? And the discussion why we are doing it is really taking a secondary place, if at all. And because they try to get efficiency in a compulsive way, they're oriented towards sameness. The decentralization of services and authority to get economies of scale, even though often because of size, they get economies, diseconomies of scale. It is just too big, too heavy, too bureaucratic. So you see the bureaucracy there is not based on functional A, cultural A, thoughtological A. It is compulsive forced A, A from the PAI model. What else is happening there? There is lack of discipline. You, know, you, you people just don't. <laughs> the, you can see that from the how management reacts. As if the way to get discipline, you need to levy very heavy penalties. Heavy penalties. Simple hints or simple warnings do not work. Threats. Major blows. That's what works. My interpretation is because there is lack of A and lack of discipline, the way to get discipline is through punishment. But because the Russian people have been punished so much over the years, they're almost immune to punishment. Thus, to get the same reaction, to get the same benefit of discipline, management has to increase <coughs> the penalties to get the same amount of reaction that they got in the past. And that makes it very difficult. What the difficulty? The penalties are heavy, <coughs> the punishments are heavy, but the reaction is very mild. What else is happening there? Very autocratic management. You, you, uh, I already reported that in many of my blogs, that whenever the top person appears, you will find out that there is silence in the room, nobody dares to react. So what you have is a very interesting combination. Lack of A on one hand, forced bureaucratization on the other hand, no discipline, but you achieve it through tremendous penalties, and all of it together with autocratic management. All of this creates what? Tremendous amount of waste, a lot of wasted energy a lot of wasted resources. And another thing it creates, fear. People act out of fear rather than out of commitment. Organization that is organized around people because good people are kind of a rare. There are not enough trained people as entrepreneurs. Entrepreneurship was discouraged during the communist Soviet Union. They used to be imprisoned. So to be to get real creative entrepreneurial people that are not too many of them, especially because the fear dominating factor undermines them, 
They don't have enough entrepreneurial people, so the organization <coughs> has to be organized around people that they can find, rather than <coughs> bring the people to what the organization needs. I spent the whole uh, week in, in Moscow working, trying to create better relationship between the rest of, of, of Russia with Moscow, clarity of communication, transparency, and flexibility of decision-making, trying to limit the amount of autocratic management. And uh, I would say this is a work in progress, and I will be reporting to you more as we go along. From Moscow, I flew to Israel. In Israel, Israel, <coughs> I have been asked by the kibbutz movement to help them because the kibbutz movement is falling apart. Kibbutzim are going bankrupt. They're selling their properties, and that communal living is beating the dust. So the question is, is it good or bad, and what do we do about it? Well, that the report requires a separate segment, so let's take a break, and we'll come back and tell you about the Israeli kibbutzim and what's happening there. What's going on behind the scenes with your favorite Voice America show or host? For the latest news, visit the iRadio blog at iradioblog.com. Learn about applying the ADESIS methodology in your organization's decision-making process. Our comprehensive training programs include a three-day introduction to the ADESIS methodology, Breakthrough to Prime, and Leading Highly Effective Teams, a detailed seven-day seminar. The seminars are valuable for corporate leaders, key executives, and others involved in the decision-making process. Our trainings are available around the world and in multiple languages. For more information about these and other training programs available, please visit adesis.com. Join the Adesis Graduate School for online master's and Ph.D. programs. Get involved with in-depth research into how change can be managed on many levels across disciplines and cultures worldwide. The clinical programs train practitioners with methods that have been used with exceptional results by certified Adesis associates and clients for decades. Core concepts include the proven Adesis theory and spiral dynamics, an emerging theory of human social evolution. For more information, go to adesisgraduateschool.org. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. You are listening to Adesis Methodology for Collaborative Management for Exceptional Results with Dr. Ishak Adesis. If you have a question or comment about the program, please call in to 1-866-472-5790. Again, that's 1-866-472-5790. Or send an email to paula at adesis.com, spelled A like America, D like Denmark, I like Israel, Z like in Zambia, E like in Ecuador, and S like Spain. Now, back to the program. Okay, now we are reporting to you my trip, which was Montenegro, then Moscow, Russia, and now we are in Israel. 
in the kibbutz movement. Let me tell you something about the kibbutz movement and why am I invited to help that movement. My doctoral dissertation 40 years ago was about industrial democracy. Uh, in that case, Yugoslavia. Yugoslavia in 1948 tried to separate itself from the Russian orbit and they developed a third way of managing, which is not capitalistic with private property and capital driving the enterprise and not the state-owned communist system that Russia had with central planning. They tried to create industrial democracy. For those of you who are wondering what is industrial democracy, let me give you a summary of it because it will lead us to understand what happened with the Israeli kibbutz. Uh, the Yugoslavs took the New England little town democracy model and applied it to everything, uh, to enterprises, hospitals, schools, neighborhoods, cities, everything called self-management which means that the people that work in the organization, they're the sovereigns, like the people of a country. They elect their workers' council, or whatever is a council that is managing that enterprise. It could be a hospital, could be a school. And that workers' council then elects the managing director, the president of the company, for four years, like in a democracy, like in a democracy. And then... After four years, the person is up for re-election. And if there is a competition for that position, people have to present their business plan, and the workers' councils will elect them, and uh, they will manage. Now you have the legislative function, which is the workers' council, and you have the executive function, which is the president and the managerial ranks, and they have to work together. There is no judicial arm like in democracy. Uh, that is outside of the enterprise. And basically, that was it. There was no workers' uh, uh, union. Uh, the syndicate or the workers' union did not represent the workers because the workers were managing the company. The, the workers' union was supposed to organize libraries and books and education and, and health and, uh, and, and, and uh, more of a social social work rather than representation because there was no need for representation. Uh, it was now the enterprise was not owned by the workers. All resources in Yugoslavia were owned by society. What does it mean? Like air, like water. Who owns air? Nobody owns air. But you're not supposed to pollute it. Same thing in Yugoslavia. Every enterprise had machinery, buildings, etc. Society which means nobody owned it. And the enterprise was having to pay like rent for using these resources. It was equivalent to the depreciation, which means that they could not deplete resources. They could only add to the resources that were socially owned. Well, guys, this is the same thing in the Israeli kibbutz. The Israeli kibbutz is a communal group of people that decided to live together they work, each one according to his capabilities, and then they get the same thing back in terms of rewards. Everybody gets exactly the same, but they contribute differently. Why? Because their capabilities are different. And <coughs> it was started 100 years ago by the 
Jews that came from Russia with a socialist ideology, and they established a kibbutzim to dry up the swamps, to build agricultural settlements. It was ideology of back to the land, back to work, uh, renewal of the Jewish spirit. Uh, uh, and they became the leaders of Israeli political life and of the Israeli military uh, uh, leadership. Well, over the years, Israel became very materialistic, very successful economically, and all this ideology of communal living, sharing, mutual commitment to each other was not as prevalent or as desirable anymore. People became very entrepreneurial. Israel is a, Tel Aviv is considered according to forgot who exactly say that, but Israel is the second place after Silicon Valley in terms of innovation. Can you imagine Silicon Valley first place, Tel Aviv second place. Israel is very, very economically successful. Most of the world is in recession. Israel is booming. Tremendous innovation, tremendous creativity, and Israel is doing very well. So the kibbutzim lost their way. The mission of socialism, sharing, was not attractive anymore. Uh, what was attractive is making money and having a good standard of living. The, 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 the swamps were already dried up, and the need to build something, agricultural settlements, was not a priority for the country anymore. So what happened to the kibbutzim? A, they lost their political power, and in the last, in the elections that are coming up in January, <coughs> not even one member of a kibbutz has a, a relatively assured place to be elected to the parliament, to the Knesset. Uh, the leadership of the Israeli military is not members of kibbutzim anymore. They lost their position in society. And many kibbutzim are go went bankrupt. Uh, they did not manage well the resources, and they decided to sell whatever enterprises they had, <coughs> share the proceeds among the members, and call it quits. And now the kibbutzim, instead of being a communal settlement, are practically a little village everybody to his own home, common services for which they pay through taxes, and that's it. Some are left around still to be communal settlements. And they call my help how to survive. What should they do in order to change the trend, which is a trend towards demise that is appearing from the scene. I went to work with a kibbutz called Maagan Michael, which is the richest kibbutz in Israel, very successful as a kibbutz. So it was not really a sample of the kibbutzim that are in trouble, but at least they were willing to cooperate the most and to have a discussion and establish a prototype, a template of how the kibbutz should be run so that they will change the trend of going bankrupt that they're going through. Okay, and what did we find out? The kibbutz movement was established, as I said, 100 years ago by socialists, communists. But there was a certain streak of communism that 
that drove the kibbutz movement. And this is the anarchists. And the anarchists believe that any management, any hierarchy is a no-no. And the whole system, polit politically, philosophically, any practice is built on minimizing hierarchy, minimizing governance. How does it look like? Well, number one is that what's called a secretary of kibbutz, which is like a managerial position, is uh, on, on purpose uh, changed every two, three, maximum four years, so nobody becomes a permanent manager of others. Number two, all leadership positions in the organization hierarchy of the kibbutz who is going to run the cows, the, the dairy, who is going to do the agricultural, who is going to do whatever, even the dining room, all those positions are appointed by the General Assembly of the Kibbutz. Years ago, the General Assembly was on Saturday evening. All members of the Kibbutz will get together, make decisions about what is going to happen in the Kibbutz. That's why I call it anarchy. Grassroot democracy, no hierarchy whatsoever. That worked 100 years ago. When there was a mission to clean up the swamps, to build the country of Israel, and people were willing to sacrifice their life for that. So there was not too much, I would say, interpersonal conflicts. The system was simple. It was agriculture. There were no multiple generations. That's not the case anymore in the kibbutz. Now there are multiple generations. They have the parents, the children, the grandchildren, the new children that left the kibbutz. Some of them want to come back to the kibbutz. What do you do? How do you manage these multi-generations? How do you manage parents that are not members of the kibbutz, that are outside of the kibbutz, and the children of the kibbutz, but the parents need help? How do you handle complexity of a kibbutz that now has industrial enterprise, not only agriculture anymore? The kibbutz Magan Michael has a company in the hundreds of millions of dollars in revenue. Multi, I would call it multinational, but they're selling all over the world the products. How, do, how can you manage that with no hierarchy? Well, I had a big challenge. What to do? Well, let me tell you after the break. Let's take a break. Now you don't have to stay linked to your desktop or laptop. Take Voice America on the go and listen anywhere. Get our mobile app for iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android at the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. Dr. Ishak Adesis is one of the leading management experts in the world. He has written 14 books that address the challenges facing top management. Books by Dr. Adesis can be found in 24 languages, they can be purchased at the Adesis store at www.adesis.com or on Amazon.com. Electronic versions are now available for three of the books with more to come. These books reflect over 40 years of study in the fields of management and organizational change. Pick up a copy of one of the books for yourself or as a gift today. 
Top Leaf is a turnkey management development curriculum that consists of a set of 20 to 30 minute videos presented by Dr. Ishak Adesis, creator of the methodology and founder of the Adesis Institute. The Adesis methodology is considered by many to be a solid foundation for all organizational development. The Top Leaf curriculum is made up of three programs. Top Leaf can be used by individuals, by organizations, and by trainers and consultants looking for new content to offer their clients. For more information about TopLeaf, visit www.adesis.com. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. You are listening to Adesis Methodology for Collaborative Management for Exceptional Results with Dr. Ishak Adesis. If you have a question or comment about the program, please call in to 1-866-472-5790. Again, that's 1-866-472-5790. Or send an email to paula at adesis.com, spelled A like America, D like Denmark, I like Israel, Z like in Zambia, E like in Ecuador, and S like Spain. Now, back to the program. So what I did, that I worked with them with the top men, with the, all the leaders of the kibbutz, about 30 of them. And uh, it, it, this was a challenge. Because in order to make change, you need to get your hands on copy. For those of you who know that this is a methodology, you know what copy is. You need all the movers and shakers in one room, so... We discuss what we should do, not what they should do. Well, in the kibbutz, <laughs> you cannot do that because the General Assembly decides everything. The General Assembly is 800 people. Impossible to manage. It's, it's a grassroots democracy. And to get 800 people to agree on anything, you have to go to a referendum. So there is no discussion. Referendum without discussion. And with weak leadership because the leadership is changed. Uh, continuously try to change them and they're relatively weak because if they make any decision which the General Assembly does not like they, and they live in the same place by the way they're kind of a shunned away in the dining room and uh, it is like being a one big family you cannot make decisions that impact the rest of the family in a way that they resent you so the whole place is what's happening not changing it is standing in one place uh, leadership cannot make the changes, and here I am to try to make changes so that they can survive. Well, we took the 30 leaders of the kibbutz, hopefully the one that can make a difference with the other 770. What we are going to do, I call in my books, uh, in my theory, rolling copy. You start with a small group, and then you start rolling it out and out and out until the totality has to agree. Uh, the analogy will be throwing a stone in the middle of the of a, of a lake, and which creates circles of waves until the shores get impacted, and the whole lake is then affected. But we, so, how big should that group be that starts the the movement, to start the the, the way the waves, has to be big enough so to create the big enough waves to go all the way to the shore, depending on the size of the lake. Well, we know here the lake was 800 people, so we chose 30 leaders, 
And then the role of every one of these leaders is to make it 300, and then by doing it three times, they will cover the totality of the membership of the kibbutz. Now the question is, what should these 30 people tell the members of the kibbutz? What kind of changes to make? The first important change I made is that the leadership positions should not be, should not be appointed by the General Assembly. First of all, the General Assembly cannot do that. It's too big. So what they really have is some kind of an appointment committee that makes appointments for the General Assembly to approve. But what happens then? You still have a hierarchy, the head of the instance, and several members of the kibbutz work in the dairy. To whom do they report to? They do not report to the head of the dairy because the General Assembly appointed them or the committee of appointments have, uh, recommended them. They don't have a personal obligation to the person above them who is responsible for the whole dairy business, for instance. And then what happens? The head of the dairy is powerless. He cannot fire them. He cannot do anything. They don't even report to him emotionally because somebody else appointed them. The whole place is without hierarchy, as prescribed by the anarchist theory and practice. Well, I try to change that. At the first day when I led the group, there was adamant. They cannot be changed. It cannot be changed. It's part of their quote-unquote religion. By the third day, there was a total agreement. We must change that. Change what? I said the General Assembly should be like stockholders. They should elect a, like a board of directors, but they didn't call it a board of directors. They called it a general secretariat. <coughs> and I recommended that half of the general secretariat be people outside of the kibbutz so that we can bring outsiders to impact what the kibbutz does so they don't cook themselves in their own water, you know? The danger there is as they watch for each other and they don't want to impact each other adversely because they, they, they live together, you see? They eat in the same dining room, the, 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 the children go to the same school. It's like one big family so everybody tries not to make waves, but then the danger is that maybe the most important decisions that need to be made are cannot be made. So by bringing outsiders, there is a chance that logic rather than emotions will govern the decision-making. This general secretariat, once gets elected, like a board of directors, appoints that's a point, appoints four members of the uh, 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 executive secretariat. What does it mean? Those are the people that are actually managing the kibbutz day to day. And I organized that along the PAEI, a secretary in charge of making money. They have enterprises, they have businesses, they have agriculture, they, they raise fish, uh, they have a fishery. These are the sources of money. Somebody has to manage that. Second person is in charge of all the services. Dining room, laundry. They, they have unbelievable amount of services. Cars that they make available to the members of the kibbutz. Uh, uh, the, the, the gardening of the kibbutz. All the services. 
the third person that really <clears throat> hardly had anybody reporting to him and then I had to create it and beef it up was a developmental secretary, the E part. And that's the person in my judgment that should be thinking <coughs> about how should the kibbutz look like five years from now, 10 years from now? What should we do with the second generation? What should we do with the older generation? What should we do with enterprises? And any new enterprises we should start? What should be the economic base of the kibbutz? None of the thinking has been happening so far. Or it has even been happening, it was not structured, it was not institutionalized. And I said, if you don't do it, what are you going to, what is, how is it going to look like 10 years from now? Right now, you are rich because <clears throat> you have an enterprise giving you dividends. But look at the other kibbutzim, they went bankrupt. <coughs> you cannot manage the future in an assembly of 800 people. Why? Because decision making when dealing with the future involves uncertainty. And different people handle uncertainty differently. So having a general assembly is a prescription for doing nothing. And then implementing whatever long-term plans there are requires risk and different people handle risk differently. Again, impossible to do it through a general assembly or through referendums. Somebody has to make a decision and if you don't like them, then you impeach them. But somebody has to be elected or appointed to make those decisions. And I build the e-component, human resources development, what kind of people they should have, whom they should attract, how they build the next generation of the kibbutz, and then what is the next economic base of the kibbutz, etc., etc., etc. And the last part, the i-component, that's the purpose why the kibbutz exists, for its membership. So it is really owner-managed place except that the kibbutz members do not own the kibbutz. Like in Yugoslavia, all assets are not owned by any individual. Now we have to deal with the same problem that I had to deal in Yugoslavia 40 years ago. What happens when somebody works in an industrial democracy for let's say 30 years, when he leaves, what does he get? Nothing. Why nothing? Because he does not own the equity that was built in the company. There is no capital in communist ideology. Well, we have to find something else. And it will be saving accounts and a pension plan where part of the income that the kibbutz generates is put aside for a member of a kibbutz to get when he retires. He can inherit it to his children or he can use it for his old age home in a kibbutz. So we tried to solve the problem of capital as well. It was a very fruitful three days. They claimed it was a revolutionary to change the direction. Uh, the direction that changed in the bottom line is a kibbutz is based on social responsibility, communal responsibility. The community is responsible for all its members. But where is the individual responsibility? Because the General Assembly appoints the people, individuals do not feel responsible. They don't report to anybody. Well, that has changed. Now we have individual accountability on the top of communal accountability. We'll see what happens. Uh, I, I, I got uh, a lot of feedback saying that it was very helpful. Now they have to think about the future. Individuals have to be more accountable. 
uh, and uh, the culture has to change accordingly. We'll see what happens at the end of my stay in the kibbutz. I flew to India to an ashram to help a mission. There is a mission of 20,000 people around the world, all, me- all in meditation, called Sahaj Mark. I belong to that mission, to that order. I uh, do the same meditation like they do, which focuses on the heart. And I was helping them succession planning because the guru, the master, 85 years old, he almost died more than once and was revived and needed to have a plan of succession. And then <coughs> to resolve some other issues that a mission, a religious mission, spiritual mission might have. I spent three days up there too. And <coughs> it was very gratifying because I learned a lot. Except that we are running out of time here. And reporting what I learned in India really doesn't deal with business, doesn't deal with management, deals with personal life, the meaning of life and death, and the meaning of love, and the meaning of happiness. Important subjects, but let's cover them next time in the next broadcast. I wish I would hear from the audience because I don't know who is listening to it. I'm now for renewal of the agreement to continue these broadcasts, but without knowing who is listening, how do you like it? I wonder whether I should continue. So I urge you, <coughs> please write to me to ichak at adhesis.com whether you're benefiting from this or not so that I know whether it's worthwhile continuing or not. Thank you very much, and I wish you all the best. Thank you again for joining us this week for Adesis Methodology for Collaborative Management for Exceptional Results with Dr. Ishak Adesis. Please tune in again next Saturday at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, 10 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Until then... Enjoy your weekend and a successful week. again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the voice america business channel for more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest please visit voiceamericabusiness.com the voice america talk radio network is the worldwide leader in live internet talk radio visit voiceamerica.com the views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by voice america talk radio network its staff and management